Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And we've got a really, really smart and I think even important episode today um, that I'm still thinking about, even though we did the interview a little while ago. Moments ago. <laughs> I, was to, I, was, I was trying. I was trying to like wing it there for a moment. To be mysterious. Um, yes. No, we had it. We had a, um, I think it was really good and smart and important and somewhat uncomfortable, but because our guests are so not uncomfortable, it was such an interesting conversation to have, and we went into a lot of far-reaching places. They are the authors of a new book, which you should totally check out. Uh, it's called We Are Not Like Them, and it's such a page-turner, like really just like a novel that's just like, oh, this is moving quickly. This is the way I mm-hmm. want a novel to be, you know? I mean, that's how I feel. I don't. It's very rare that I pick up a novel like that. And, um, because I feel like I, I pick up things by like word of mouth or not word of mouth, but like by like whatever reviews and then I'll pick it up and I'll be like, I don't even like this that much, you know, but this is really a book that you can just like very much, like it's very immersive. It's very immersive. And at the same time, it says some important things about race in this country that like, they talk about this a little, that like serious nonfiction books don't quite bang the door down on. You know, it's it, it's a book that I think because it is fiction, they talk about this much better than I am. So I'll stop talking. Um, well, it's a it's a it's a book about a um, a long standing, lifelong interracial friendship between a black woman and a white woman, and and they are able to because they're doing it through two characters, which they wrote together, both of them, they're able to explore a lot of issues and subtleties about how we think about race in our friendships and in our lives, yep. um, both from a white perspective and a black perspective. I, I was really impressed with this and just a really impressive idea and an impressive way to work on a piece of art, honestly. Yep, yep, and now all I want is a writing partner. That's all I want. I keep telling you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right here. I would, Jen, I would love nothing more than to write a book with you. I think you would find it to be thankless to write a book with me. (laughs) You say that and yet, well, first of all, I just have to finish this first book that I'm working on, but you say that and then I have, then I have nothing literally, but you say that, but also you forget that I worked with you for all told like six years. True. Like it's not like I'm unfamiliar and I sometimes ghost wrote your editor's letter, friend. Yes, there was. Yes, I always thought it was so hilarious when I worked at other magazines that the editor's letter was the last thing to close every issue. That's and right. Then, and then I did the same thing, and it was totally just because I kept blowing it off. I, I feel that all editors did. I think you felt a lot of pressure to get it right, 
and it was a lot easier because you were editing so much copy. It was a lot easier. It's not like what I wrote was what wound up in the final thing. It was a lot easier to have like some words on a page that you could rearrange than to start with a blank page. Yes. It's like if you don't have fingernails, you can't peel an orange, you know, mm -hmm. you like you need someone to like get that started for you. Yes. I mean, look, you can also do a call out for another. If you don't want to wait for me, <laughs> you can do a call out for another writing partner, I'm yeah. sure. Do you, <laughs> know that, find one. do you know that when I was still single, I was like, I wonder if I could do a call out for a boyfriend. Like surely one of the listeners of this podcast or a reader of my blog has a boyfriend for me. But I never, I never did it. <laughs> can you I imagine? Mean, can you I, imagine? Well, I mean, it could have, is it worse than, than Tinder? Um, you've got a very good point. There are a few things worse than Tinder. Yeah. I mean, Tinder is how I met my last two serious relationships, but it is, I, I can say that and also say that it is a shit show. An absolute shit show. Yeah, I mean, the, the Nancy Joe Sales episode where we talked about it, it sounded so gross and involved so much spitting and choking. I, I, will, never, <laughs> I, will, I will never get on it. All right, well, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just, you know, I was trying to filter that through my own personal experience. I was like, spit on, no, choked, attempted, yes. See, I know, I know, I know. Did you see that... Um, did you see that article in the New York Times this week that um, sex positive uh, feminism, which, you know, embraces porn and everything, that Gen Zers are rejecting that because they also hate porn and they see how damaging porn has been. So instead of just being like fully embracing like, yeah, anything goes, porn, yeah. Gen Z, I think it was Michelle Goldberg, but I might have totally just made that up. But there was an article in the Times, an opinion piece in the Times, I think last week, a couple of weeks ago, um, about how Gen Zers are sort of running away from this all, just all, all sex is okay, all sex positivity, and sort of setting some more boundaries because, because in part, porn had gotten so out of control. And then from that, places like Tinder and men's expectations, you know, this is just heterosexual world. I, I don't, that's what they were talking about, men in particular. Um, men's expectations, straight men's expectations of sex were just so off the mark because of porn and how not personalized, you know, they, they're not, they're not understanding it in, you know, in real time or in real life. No. And not only that part, but like porn actresses have their labias operated on so that they're, so that they barely exist. So oh my God. these these people, these Gen Gen Z people, are like, I expected a naked body to look like. I understand it. I get it. You know, because yeah. porn, porn has been part of their lives. I mean, what did we have when we were kids? Occasionally, the dad of one of our friends would have a Playboy under his bed. Penthouse you know. baby, v Vanessa Williams penthouse, Madonna penthouse. <laughs> yes, that's, that's, that's what I remember. But oh wait, wait, and Skinamax. And Skinamax? Oh, yes, Cin Cin Cinemax. Cinemax. Yes, yes they had, <laughs> It's true. The best sex I ever had. And like HBO had that um, real sex show. Oh, my God. That was so... It was just like a bunch of like dangling dongs in Hawaii. Really? I feel like super, that's... Super not hot. Super not hot. I mean, I have nothing against pornography, but I also like was not raised with it. And I can see where for both boys and girls, straight and gay, that would be damaging and there'd be a reaction to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and obviously it's, you know, it's everybody's preference is different. And, you know, there's this whole idea that like demisexuals who are not attracted to people unless they have an emotional connection, which is, which is now a label, which mm -hmm. is something I always identified with, but did not know there was a label for it. Um, and now the kids have, I mean, they have labels for everything. It's amazing. The, the menu is just amazing now. Um, I don't know how we got on this. How <laughs> did we get this. on this? I think oh, it was. Yeah. I think it was my fault. I think <laughs> I said. I think it was my fault. I, I, I blame me. Well, I don't blame you because it's interesting, but we should probably get, we could talk about this for a really long time, porn, but we should probably get into <laughs> the episode. Yes. Good idea. 
Our guests today are Christine Pride and Joe Piazza, who is a returning Everything is Fine guest. Christine and Joe are publishing veterans. Christine as an editor on the book publishing side, and Joe is a longtime author and journalist. Together, they've written the new novel, We Are Not Like Them, the story of lifelong best friends, Jen and Riley, whose relationship is put to the test when Jen's police officer husband is involved in the shooting of an unarmed black teenager, and when Riley, a news anchor in their hometown of Philadelphia, is assigned to cover the story. The book, which was written in alternating voices, is smart and thought-provoking and a page-turner in exactly the way you want a novel to be. Welcome, Christine and Joe. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be here. And thanks for those kind words. We really that was so it. nice. I think I said this last time I was on. I want you to introduce me all the time. Like when, I walk, <laughs> when I walk into the grocery store, I want you to be like, this is Joe Piazza. <laughs> okay, really quickly, even though Joe did just say her name, please just say who you are so our listeners know which voice belongs to whom, please. Sure. This is Christine Pride. And I am Joe Piazza. And another thing that we think is important to say on podcasts because of the book is that we are a white woman and a black woman. I am the white woman. And I'm a black woman. <laughs> so, so, and under any other default. circumstances, that's a very awkward introduction. But like we said, you know, radio, podcast, we have to make that clear. Of course. It's relevant. It's, it's, it, it becomes yeah. relevant as we talk about the book. To, of course. Put that out there. Of course. So when did you guys start thinking about writing this book? And, and how did you choose to write it together? Were you friends before? So I, uh, we say all the time, we neither of us could have written this book on our own, nor should we have written We Are Not Like Them on our own. Uh, Christine was my editor at Simon & Schuster. She edited my last novel, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win. And we worked together so well. We loved working together. We wrote another like quick and dirty book together, um, Marriage Vacation for the TV show Younger. And we wanted to figure out how to keep working together, but we also became pretty fast friends. Christine came with me on my book tour. We hung out at each other's houses. Like we just, we wanted to keep doing something together. And Christine had never written a book, but she had kind of the spark for a book. And I'll mm -hmm. let her get into that. Yeah, I, so this was March of 2018 or spring of 2018 when we um, it really started thinking about what else we could collaborate on. And I'd had this idea for a little while and I was really informed by the headlines, right, of police shootings. And, you know, tragically, these things go in really dramatic ebbs and flows um, where there feels like there's a rash of terrible instances, instances and um, headlines, and then there's a lull and so forth. Uh, but this is a particularly bad period. Um, and so the idea was what would happen if I thought about, you know, my own relationships, right? So what would happen if um, this interracial friendship between a black woman and white woman was affected by a police shooting and not in any distant sort of way, but, you know, when it really hits close to home and they both have personal stakes in the story. Uh, and what happens. And as Joe said, this was something that we knew we should write together because we could both bring our individual experiences and perspectives to the table as a black woman and a white woman and write a book that was enriched by that and stronger than either of us could have written as individual writers. The book, yeah, it, it almost feels like a social experiment to some degree. You know, it's, it's written in all alternating points of view of the white protagonist, Jen, and the black protagonist, Riley, but you completely wrote the characters together. Like, it's not like one of you took the white parts and the other one took the black parts. Can you talk about that decision? Yeah, totally. We, I, both of us wrote every bit of this book together. And by the end of it, like, our brains were fused in this <laughs> weird, kind of probably unfortunate mind meld. But it was really important for us because we wrote the book in first person to be able to get inside our characters' heads about everything, but especially about topics regarding race and to see what they think and then to see what they say because those things are often different. And I don't think that, especially in commercial fiction, that we get those kinds of perspectives to allow us to see the dissonance between 
how people think about race and how they present and speak about race. So Christine and I really wanted to bring both of these perspectives to the table as a white woman and a black woman so that this book could be for everyone. And Christine talks about this a lot. She's been in publishing for, for so long. A lot of books are for a very specific audience. And we wanted this book to be for a very, very wide audience. We want all readers to be able to see something of themselves in one of these characters. And to do that, it took the two of us coming to the table and having some really difficult conversations, not just about race, but also about friendship hmm. and what friend what friendship means and how complicated a lifelong friendship can be. I want, I wanted to bring this up on this podcast because we're talking to women after the age of 40 at a certain point in their life. And, and that's both Christine and I. It's freaking hard to make mm-hmm. new friends as mm-hmm. you get older. Yeah. Um, and Christine and I did it. And she's one of one of the few new people that I've like genuinely added to my social circle, you know, who I spend a lot of time with, who I talk to on a very regular basis because it is so hard. And we don't think that friendship, especially female friendship is celebrated nearly enough in commercial fiction. It's all like weddings and sex and romance and and we wanted to celebrate female friendship because for both of us, that is the, backbone of our lives that's what gets us through every day and we we, this is a book about social justice and race but at its heart it is about women and friendship and how we save each other on a regular basis well books don't usually they don't usually celebrate female friendship and they also don't usually explore it even well yes i mean that's we saw a real opportunity to do that because we just love friendship and you you know as an editor and lifelong readers, avid readers, we know that we see stories about romantic love over and over again, right? And that is kind of the center place of pulp culture. And that's what we think about when we think about long-term relationships or serious relationships or relationships that matter, right? It all comes down to um, to usually even men and women, although we're making some strides there to not be so heteronormative. Um, but in our case, we wanted to to have a friendship have the same weight and respect and validity and um, depth on the page. Um, and obviously both Jen and Riley are characters have other things going on in their lives um, and have other relationships. But the touch point for our book and the core of it is this friendship. And we think that there's a lot of women out there who, you know, love their friends and have these kind of special relationships with their friends and that they'll be able to relate to Jen and Riley, both in the, just how close and complicated their friendship is, but also when conflict comes up in a friendship, it's a different kind of conflict and there's a different kind of stake than when conflict comes up in a, in a marriage, say, and that's just interesting to explore. Well, totally. And it really struck me how much you guys really explored long-term friendship. You know, there's a line in the book, um, it's in the climax of the book when they're in the middle of like a real, it's like a sort of come to Jesus between the two of them. And the line is, it's a paradox loving someone precisely because you know them so well inside and out. And at the same time, nursing a tiny fantasy that they can be different in the specific ways you want them to be. And that line hit me so much because I was just thinking about how much we have to accept in the people that we choose to have over a long haul in our lives. Because it makes sense. You change so much throughout the course of your life. You're not the same person you were when you were, you know, 13, 18, 20, whenever you made these young friendships. And so you have to accept some things about another person. And I think it's something that we, particularly in this time, in this country, are have a really hard time with is accepting differences in each other and wanting the other person to change, but also accepting the friendship and not knowing how to confront the things we want a person to change, I guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely. And it's such a double-edged sword, I think. And that's what we were really trying to capture. And I see this play out. I mean, I feel really lucky that I have 
a lot of close long-term friendships. I mean, one of my best friends I met when I was in kindergarten and um, the other uh, when I was 14. And there's something about somebody knowing you when, right? Like that I've seen all of your formative moments and kind of your origin story. And just by virtue of being young, you sort of have access to people's families in a different way, right? Because your mom's always around for pickup or what have you. Um, and so it's, it's a different type of relationship. It's almost more of a familial or sibling relationship when you have that. And so you both covet that feeling of familiarity, but at the same time, chafe sometimes against this idea of, no, I'm different and you need to see all the ways I'm different and I'm not that person. And it's, uh, it's so easy for us to revert to old versions of our ourselves or to want to fight to shed old versions of ourselves right and uh your friend is there to either let you do that or <laughs> you know kind of prevent you from doing that um and and that's where some growing pains can come in a friendship well because you inevitably change. I mean, I'm still very close to my freshman year roommate in college. We've we've moved in very different directions. Um, and I know I won't change her. And I've accepted it, you know, because we have, because the depth of the friendship, because of the fact that like I knew her parents, she knew my parents. Um, there's something so valuable there that even if I met her today, you know, I think we wouldn't necessarily be friends, but it doesn't matter. If that makes sense. You can't sense. recreate shared history. Right. Is the thing. Right. And by cutting, shutting a door and cutting someone off, you cut off this whole part of yourself. And that's really painful. Sometimes you have to do it, but it's a really painful thing to shut off those shared memories and those shared history and that shared context. It's just not something you can recreate at this age. You can have a different kind of friendship, but it'll, it'll never be the same. Well, one thing we always, you know, ask ourselves, and I think our readers will ask is, you know, would Riley and Jen be friends if they met today or, you know, they met at work as adults or, you know, we maybe even met in college. Right. And the question is, mm -hmm. would they? day of we live in such a socially segregated world um that the chances of that even are unlikely right i mean our social events our churches our schools mom's groups then because of schools you know all of these things you know people are not do not bring diverse groups of people together work is the one place that does that more than any other place, but still, you know, there are some barriers there. And so that's just an interesting thing that we're always asking ourselves. And I think the answer to our question is no, they might not have become friends and then their shared history becomes the thing that keeps them together. Uh, and that's valuable. It's just a different way to look at a relationship, right? And to see, and especially for mm -hmm. people who don't have that long-term friendship, which is a you know, really special and unique thing, or for people who don't have a friendship with somebody of another race, this is their relationship can be kind of a vicarious tour, right? Or vicarious peer into what these relationships are like. Um, I saw you say that while you're writing the book, um, you joked about writing an essay called How Writing a Book About Race Almost Destroyed Our Interracial Friendship. And um, I'm wondering what came up that was surprising to you guys as you were writing this together. What was what was uncomfortable? What got sticky? Oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, all right, I'll I'll start. I'll start, and then Christine can jump in. And so, for me to tell this story, I like I have to get pretty vulnerable and be pretty honest. And I think that's what we want people to do too when they're reading this book. I grew up, you know, in fairly white circles. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, not by choice, but because I was a juvenile delinquent um, eighth grader, <laughs> and which was very, very white. Um, my graduating class, I went through my yearbook to confirm. I mean, it was just, you know, very pale. And went to Penn, which calls itself a very diverse school, but you know, people stay in their social groups and their social circles. And mm -hmm. I didn't make a, I didn't make a huge effort in hindsight. And so I don't have any close friends that 
are black. I don't. I have acquaintances. I have work friends. I have friends I go drinking with. I don't have anyone that I spend time discussing things with or that I text that I used to text when I got dumped. So Chris, in that way, Christine is my first black friend, my first close black friend. And as I assumed that writing a novel about race would be like writing a novel about anything. I've written novels about so many different subjects and it's not, it's just different. It requires different muscles. It requires different sensitivities and empathies. And I was so scared of saying the wrong thing or insulting Christine and or insulting our reader that I was just nervous. I was on edge so often writing this book. And then I got defensive because that's our defense mechanism when you're nervous and on edge. And then poor Christine sees me getting defensive and she's like, how the hell are we going to write a book about race if we can't talk about race? And both of us had to figure out how to communicate all of that, all of that, to get it all out on the table. We both had to get uncomfortable. I had to get really uncomfortable. I had to do my own work, my own listening with regards to my own racial reckoning, which sounds like a stupid, woke, white lady thing to say. But I, I, like, you know, I just, I, I had to figure my shit out and my baggage out and how to go to places and have conversations about race that I still think a lot of white people are nervous to be having. And, and then, and I'd like Mm -hmm. to be honest about that because I want people to hear this and be like, I am nervous about having it. Like, thank you. Thank you for admitting it. And then poor Christine, who has been talking about race her whole damn life since she could talk, you know, is having to listen to me be like, blah, 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 blah. And that was annoying <laughs> for her. <laughs> so, so many things for our friendship and our working relationship to get through, to figure out how to get all of this out on the page. And I feel like that was just like a bunch of word vomit. But that's that's where, yeah, that's. I'm just I'm just word vomiting now when it comes to that question. No, no you're not. You're, you're not, not word vomiting. That I think you're making sense. a lot. You're making a lot. You're making a lot of sense. And I can. And I think it's it's. I think it's really good of you to be saying all this stuff. I think it's incredibly relatable. I think a lot of this is about fear on both sides. Like nobody wants to offend anybody, so nobody's saying the real thing a lot of times. You know. Um, or, or white people are afraid to offend people. So we're just like, oh, on, on edge. And then black people are afraid to tell white people the real thing because they don't want to hurt our feelings sometimes. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Christine, please talk. But that's, I think there's a lot of fear. <laughs> I think there's a lot of fear happening around all of these conversations. Absolutely. I mean, I think the hard part is that, especially in our, you know, sort of post George Floyd world, and the world that we're publishing this book into in a way it's, that's fortunate timing is that people are eager uh, to have these kind of conversations or at least curious about them or thinking about race and how it plays out of their lives in different ways um, in a way that maybe they didn't even you know two years ago. Um, but the flip side to that is as hungry as people may be to have these conversations and you know, there's still a lot of, um, there, there's still so much fear and there's still this idea of, yes, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, let's talk about this. But as a black person, as you said, there's fear in that there's going to be a predictable reaction almost. Like there's going to be one of three things will happen um, and you don't, in the anticipation of one of those three things happening, you're already thinking a little bit of, well, why bother? You know, like why go there? Yeah. And so I think that's really the key. And that's what Jill and I had to overcome that, you know, my fear and expectation, frankly, that she was going to be defensive or dismissive uh, or shut down, right? Those are the three kind of predictable responses a lot of times. Um, And so it's almost that the reaction in talking about race, if a Black person is bringing something up, either an issue, personal experience, et cetera, et cetera, the, the reaction almost matters more than anything else, right? What you're met with. Um, and that is what either builds or kills trust and vulnerability. Um, and that is a, a stumbling block 
that I feel like we're hitting a lot in these conversations. Joe and I certainly experienced that. Um, and so if, and our characters, you know, also experience that. And so I think if there's one thing that this book can be helpful with is hopefully helping people push, have the conversation in the first place in a way that you might not say to somebody, hey, do you want to talk about race in 2021? <laughs> <laughs> you know, pull up a chair, but you can say, oh, I read this book and, you know, I can't believe when this character said this or this happened, I felt this way. Right. Um, but I also then hopes it helps people have more of a s- awareness of what their reaction is and, um, you know, sort of what the pitfalls of these conversations can look like. And sometimes just witnessing that can be helpful. Now let's take a quick break for some ads. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once-daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. What, how did you guys get around moments that felt really tense mm-hmm. and like, maybe this book is a bad idea <laughs> and maybe we should just, you know, shake hands and depart yeah. as friends. How did you, how did you get past those moments? I mean, I'll jump in just to say, and then I'll let Joe go because for me it was, um, uh, they were hard and, and there were moments truthfully where we were like, we can't keep going. It's like, we, this is just too hard. I think one thing that really helped us though is feeling so much oriented about our book 
because of the subject matter, because of the gravity of it, because of really what we wanted to do and what we were trying to get to, I, I think we both stayed engaged out of a sense of meaning and that this would be and will be worth it. And in, in a way that it wouldn't have been such a factor if we were writing a book about, you know, two women who open a dog walking business and the cute puppies <laughs> walk, right? I mean, which is a perfectly valid, you know, book idea. Oh, but Can we please um, do that one next? <laughs> <laughs> Much lighter fare for sure. Um, but we really, we wanted to push through because we, we, all the while, I think we both had an innate sense that what we could end up achieving would be something that was worth all of the struggle. And that, um, that just kept us motivated, I would say, for my part. Was it, was it cathartic to write about this ultimately? Like, did it wind up being a cathartic experience? I will say for me, it did. And I want to go back to something that Christine said. And I I love talking about this in podcasts. And we actually talked about this. We did a diversity, equity and inclusion event with a bunch of folks from Heineken of all of all companies, which was awesome. That our event made me love Heineken so much. I'm like, I bleed green now. (laughs) (laughs) I will only drink Heineken. Um, But what Christine said about the reactions that like, you know, black people are nervous about the reaction a white person is going to have. And I had all of those shitty reactions that she's like, please don't, please don't behave like this. Please don't get defensive. Please don't get nervous. Please don't, don't, you know, get argumentative. And I had those reactions again, and they were coming from a place of fear. But I loved when Christine told me that, like that her telling me it's the reactions that matter. It's how you take in the information. It's, it's how you respond to me. Like that was almost like the key to un- unlocking a lot of how we could communicate for me. And so like, I, and I'll also say I'm a, per- I'm a reporter. I report everything out. So I'm a, rep- and also like a weird, like academic. I have two completely useless master's degrees. So I'm like, I am going to study this or I'm going to report my way out of this hole. And like, you can do a lot. But you just the cop, but the real nitty gritty conversations you have and living a reality in your friendship teaches you so much more. And that's why we think watching our characters go through what they go through on the page we, can teach you a lot more than listening, listening to an academic on a podcast or, you know, reading a nonfiction book, all of which are helpful and useful and have their place. But we also think. I mean, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess the, the slate of books last year that was a little bit embarrassing. But anyway, I mean, it's, it, I guess it was They could have been helpful. I'm sure they were. some of them were helpful. Sorry. Sorry. That no, was- no, 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 but it, but it wasn't. And because like they have their place. But also, I genuinely feel a lot of that nonfiction is not going to find its way out of a certain bubble of mm-hmm. people who are seeking that mm-hmm. out. And what we hope is that our book, because it is commercial women's fiction, you might pick it up if you have a completely different view and then find yourself falling into the story and falling in love with these characters. And I think that's what's needed to change hearts and minds much more than a book accusing you of being a racist. And that you're pushing on an open door with, because as you said, this the same small group of people is going to read a lot of those books where a book like this. And also people can attach their own hopes, fears, and dreams to a novel mm-hmm. in the way that they can't to nonfiction, I would argue. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely in this book. I will say, I want you guys to know, you. I think you really achieved what you wanted to because you talk about privilege and wokeness without beating anyone over the head with it. And, you know, there's really no good or bad characters here. You just paint them as human beings going through a bunch of complicated shit. And I think that, that that really works for this novel. And I also think, and I'm wondering this, just curiosity, because I it, the, the book's very cinematic. Did you think about that? I mean, you could see this book. Did you Were you thinking about it as you were writing it? Like, oh, we could be writing a movie as well. <laughs> well, I can't not think about it after the disaster with Julia Roberts from Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win. Love to bring that one up, okay. my friends. <laughs> um. <laughs> I definitely want to hear more about that. Julia Roberts. Um, No, I mean, I look, we 
we live in a world where everything ends up getting optioned and moving onto a TV screen. And Christine and I had talked about this so much from the beginning of like what this would look like on the screen, because we do think it would reach an even bigger audience than books. We know that it's, those are just the numbers. And so we would love, love, love for that to happen. Um, but I will say that while writing it, we just focus because I've read a lot of books recently that I really enjoyed, but I'm like, oh, you're writing the screenplay. Good for you. Um, we tried to focus <laughs> on like the enjoyment as a novel as much as possible because we're both just we're both such readers. We both just love books so much. Yeah, I think another way this might feel like it's apropos of nothing, but it's interesting for me. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about our book in terms of um having these hard conversations about race and what it can bring up for white people. And I mean, all that is important and was part of our mission. But I think what was also important to me as a black woman and writer is that this book is uh, sort of subversive almost in another way, which is to present a character that uh, in Riley that doesn't fall into what we so often see are the tropes and the stereotypes for the Black experience in all of pop culture, but definitely, you know, including books um, where, you know, there's, it's, we're making strides, but there's still a dearth of protagonist, right, that, um, you know, hold the story, that star in the story that aren't, you know, the sidekick or what have you, and that represent, there's not a monolithic Black experience, obviously, even though sometimes pulp culture seems to have one, you know, lead you to believe that there was, and so Riley is, you know, a, a very driven, successful, um, you know, middle-class, striving, black woman of the type that you know still is out there I promise you so many people uh, <laughs> but still feels sort of underrepresented in pulp culture again though that's changing um and so but also she's we took great pains to make her a fully human and flawed person so she's also not stock black character you know which also happens mm -hmm. a lot or representative character right so this is you know this is the black woman um because when you're a minority so often or you're the only person in the space or what have you you know you then become a representative <laughs> of an entire mm -hmm. people. Um, and so I definitely did not want that to be the case for Riley either, right? That she is the stand-in for Black America in this book. No, she is an individual person uh, who has her own complicated relationship with and coping mechanisms um, when it comes to dealing with race in America, as every Black person in America does. You, one of you said, it was in a, it was in a joint interview, it's hard to have a friend of another race in America. What did you want the book to illuminate about that? Well, one of the things that we, one of the statistics we throw out there is that 75% of white people don't have a friend of another race. It's just a fact. Um, and it is because there's so many reasons that people both are segregated, but then also self-segregate um, and the people we choose to spend time with. But but also, I feel like we've gotten, our, as a country, we've gotten so politically divided and so caught up in identity politics and us versus them, which comes back to our title, We Are Not Like Them, which has so many different meanings. You know, we are all kind of retreating into our bubbles and terrified of of making friends with people who aren't like this, us because you know, that would just take a lot more work. And so that's one of the meanings of we are not like them. And people retreating into themselves being like, no, oh, no, no, we're not like them. We're different than them. And then one, another one of the meetings or one of the meanings is the friendship, right? Like, oh, our friendship is so so close. We're we're not like those other people, those other people who can't who who can't get it, who can't figure it out. So, yeah, I think. I think it is harder than ever before to to make a diverse friendship in this country. I think there's a lot of barriers at a time when there need to be way less when this is when I think friendship could bridge a lot of divides. 
I actually came across this poem recently. I wish I had come across it much earlier in our writing journey because uh, it really captures what we're talking about in terms of from a black perspective, the, the requirements, maybe that's too strong a word, uh, you know, for having an interracial friendship, but it's this Pat Parker poem called For the White Person Who Wants to Know How to Be My, my Friend. And the first two lines are, the first thing you need to do is to forget that I'm black. Second, you must never forget that I'm black. And I think that that yeah. captures the paradox, right? Like I think a lot of times it's I'm colorblind and you know, I, I don't see color, you're just like me, which is not mm -hmm. actually a compliment, um, even though people might think that it is um, because you want to, I want to be seen as a black person. And then I want you to, you know, value and, and see validity in my experiences as a black woman in America. But at the same time, um, you know, it also can't be the flip side, right? Is the is the fixation on race, um, and so it's 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 a tricky balance to be sure, but a balance that's only achieved by having the kind of conversations and being open um, in the ways that we talked about. Race and somebody's experiences cannot be the elephant in the room in any friendship, and that is the biggest challenge that our characters face. It feels like the elephant in the room because they have not addressed it, and they must. Right. Would you guys write another book together? Are you going to write another book together? Do you have plans to write another book together? Pregnant pause. We, um... Oh, <laughs> I'm like, uh, we are, right? Wait, we're, half, we're half, we're half. I was just waiting for you to answer, and then I was like, uh, oh, maybe there are second thoughts here. I no, no, no. We're, we're, I mean, we're, 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 halfway, we're halfway through our, our next book, and with a fully fleshed outline for the third book. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to speak for Christine. I'll do this with Christine for as long as she'll have me. So um, I'd like us to be the golden girls, just, you know, porch sitting and chur <laughs> churning, churning out, out meaningful books um, 30 years from now. So we'll see. Joe, is it easier? You know, from writing on your own, was it easier to write with another person in some ways just because the collaboration, because writing is so goddamn isolating and lonely? Um, yes and no, because I've all, I've collaborated before too. Um, it is easier right. to work with another person when they're the right partner and the same as, as a marriage, right? So Christine is an amazing right. partner who does the work and like puts in 110%. And so, and we also work well together um when it's not yeah. the right person it can be a special circle of hell so um but it is a lot less lonely than writing a book yeah. on your own because you're you just you become this weird hermit who just never talks to anyone and i've got a friend who i can bounce things off of all the time there was a learning curve for us though yeah. because it's also hard to have someone rip something to shreds. You're like, I just wrote the most beautiful metaphor of all time. And Christine's like, that sucks. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um. yeah. No shit. Well, that's Sorry. what you get for well, writing with an editor. The thing for me, I've never written a book alone before, so I have nothing to compare it to. But I really so value the collaborative nature of an editorial relationship. I mean, I tend to get very close to my writers. I work in the mm -hmm. trenches together. I'm very hands on, and I love that dynamic creative process. And so it's hard for me to imagine not having that right not having the creative friction and brainstorming um and uh, i do think it would be really lonely both the writing part itself but even this part where we're out in the world talking about our book um and our experience writing it it just feels more fun uh even to 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 be able to have a partner to do that with yeah that's what I got to find. That's what I got to find, a writing partner. You can screen people I'm right, for I'm you. right here. I'm right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. If I thought that was a possibility, mm -hmm. I would go for it in a second. Well, you we know, maybe I'd rather write a different book. Joe and I should create like a screening <laughs> test where you know you'll be good writing 
companions if you answer these 10 questions. <laughs> totally. Well, it's like we, because you, you've all worked in publishing. You know what it's like mm-hmm. to see the copy of somebody, the raw copy of somebody who mm-hmm. has been edited really well by a lot of different people for a long time. And I worked at a magazine once where we thought they should come up with a little symbol <laughs> that you can put at the end of an article like that, you know, like with GMOs, like this piece has been heavily, heavily, heavily edited. <laughs> like a secret code for editors. And, yeah. The bad yeah, yeah, for editors. Just for editors. <laughs> um, where can people find both of you and find this book? I mean, obviously this book is where books are sold, but where can they find both of you after this conversation? Well, we are keeping both of our Instagrams uh, updated. This is the world we live in now, right? This is where we find out information on social media. It's a bookstagram exactly. world, yes. It's, that's why I have updates <laughs> about tour events and you know, any <laughs> updates about the, the book journey. And so I am at uh, Chris or C Pride at C Pride on Instagram. And I am at Joe Piazza, author. Um, We'll see. I mean, I hate that I send people to the Instagram because I find the Instagram exhausting, but then that's also how everyone finds my books and this is the world we live in. So we'll see if, uh, if I, if I keep it after this book, cause I would really love, love, love to just throw my phone in a goddamn fire. <laughs> oh man. Not yet. Next, not I'm yet. just thinking TikTok. <laughs> I'm thinking oh, TikTok for the next oh, book. Fuck just you. Pure Ronaldini. Just pure old lady. <laughs> 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 I love it. You that shut your you shut your mouth. The only TikTok is my speed. Exactly, that's what I was thinking. I could find a niche there. <laughs> Old fluencer. Um, ladies, thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. Well, thank we you. Thank loved you. being here. We're going to add again, shameless book club. We are going to add where you can find the book because it'll be available. Where, oh yes, uh, go. Sold. So uh, your local indie is always Please, an option. Yes. Bookshop.org is an um, an online destination that uh, sort of serves the conglomerate for indies. Uh, always Amazon, of course. I'm Barnes and Noble, other retailers, and it'll be available on October. October 5th. So very excited and we loved being here. Thank you for chatting with us. Thank you so much. This was just great. Thanks guys. I loved it. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please review it and rate it on platforms where you listen to podcasts. If you want to support the show, And get access to some cool stuff like live monthly events and bonus episodes. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. If you throw us a few dollars, we'll throw you a Zoom party. Um, We can also find us on Instagram at EIF podcast. We're on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at everythingisfinethepodcast at gmail.com. And you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.